Welcome to Global Journalists, a program about journalists, by journalists, and for journalists, and the people who depend on our work. I'm Reagan Mertz, and in this three-part series, we will explore the question, does public funding have a place in journalism? This question is important now because the rise of internet and social media have put traditional media outlets under financial pressure. Across the world, media outlets are facing a drop in advertising revenue. This means that journalism is looking for new funding sources, and the government could be one of them. Yet, in the United States, the government has turned hostile to the few media outlets it does fund. This week, we'll take a look at one of them, Stars and Stripes, a newspaper that has served U.S. troops for more than a century. While the Pentagon's plan to shut the paper down on September 30th has been averted, the newspaper's future seems far from secure. For this episode, I spoke with current and former Stripers, a U.S. representative, and veterans to learn about their encounters with Stars and Stripes. Seven months after the Civil War began, Union soldiers chased Confederate troops from Bloomfield, Missouri, about 250 miles southeast of where this podcast is being produced. Among the Union soldiers were four who had been pressmen before the war. When they stumbled across an abandoned newspaper office, they went to work. On November 9, 1861, the first Stars and Stripes rolled off the presses. It was just one page, but it already had a personality. The newspaper has a long-running reputation for telling jokes at the expense of the enemy while delivering news of interest to troops, a reputation that has grown along with the military's hometown paper through America's subsequent military involvement. Today, Stars and Stripes delivers news in print and online, boasts a podcast, uses photos and videos, and has expanded internationally. But the paper's independence has not endeared it to the military brass. President Trump says funding for the Stars and Stripes will not be cut. But a big chunk of its budget comes from the Pentagon. The Pentagon made the announcement today, despite rare bipartisan agreement. In February of this year, the Pentagon proposed cutting off $15.5 million of the newspaper's budget for fiscal year 2021. But according to Ombudsman Ernie Gates, That budget cut was not just a reduction based on economics. That was a uh, reduction designed to be fatal. In August, the Pentagon sent a note to the publisher telling him that the newspaper's final edition should be September 30th. This would shut down the newspaper, leaving over 300 stripers unemployed and depriving soldiers of an editorially independent news source. After an outcry from members of Congress and the public, President Trump tweeted that Stars and Stripes' funding will not be cut under my watch. But according to Ombudsman Ernie Gates, no one at Stars and Stripes is popping champagne corks just yet. According to the Library of Congress, Stars and Stripes was intended to provide uncensored news from soldiers for soldiers. Now, uncensored is a key word here. Some higher-ups have a hard time accepting this. The newspaper's willingness to be anywhere from cheeky, evidenced in the first few issues, to critical of the military has been a hallmark of its existence and also the subject of endless battles. This is something Stars and Stripes has had to fight off from the beginning, from the very beginning. That's Cindy Elmore, a former Stars and Stripes reporter who now makes the paper a topic of her research as a professor at East Carolina University. There, it's just an interesting existence Stripes has in that it is guaranteed First Amendment editorial freedom to cover the military and the Department of Defense, but yet the Department of Defense is what funds Stars and Stripes. But it's a tough position for any newspaper to be in when you are are expected to do your job critically as a journalist, and yet the entity you are critically examining as a journalist also provides your paycheck. There, There really 
aren't other newspapers like that. Through her research and her personal experience working for the newspaper in Naples in the 90s, she has seen Pentagon efforts to control the newspaper and its active duty reporters. And it's a, it's a hard needle to thread, and there's been many, many cases in its history when Stars and Stripes journalists had to go to Congress and say, you know, please help us. You set this up. You set up this newspaper to be an editorially independent voice covering the troops, and these people are not allowing us to do that. These people are thwarting our efforts to give the troops the, the truth. Stars and Stripes cartoonist and Pulitzer winner Sergeant Bill Malden quickly became famous for his cartoons depicting G.I.'s Willie and Joe. Despite the cartoon's popularity, there was one person who didn't like Willie and Joe's unkempt appearance, Lieutenant General George Patton. Patton threatened to get Malden fired, but Patton's boss, General, and later President Dwight D. Eisenhower overruled him. Stars and Stripes is a soldier's paper, Ike famously said, and we won't interfere. Not all the military brass has always felt that way. The bottom line is, Stars and Stripes is a paper for the troops, not the brass, which is why it's always in trouble. There's always a little bit of a conflict because Stars and Stripes is a First Amendment newspaper and it publishes whatever it wants to publish. And sometimes those are things the Department of Defense would rather not have published. So there's always some of that, but that's really no different than dealing with any other government agency because Stars and Stripes First Amendment status is protected by law. It's a great example of freedom of the press in the, as practiced in the United States because other countries look at that and say, wow, they let this newspaper, which is owned and run by their government, uh, criticize the very things they're covering. And um, that's a great lesson to other countries and how we deal with freedom of the press in the United States. And we should be proud of that. That's Brian Brooks, a professor at the Missouri School of Journalism, where I and my teammates on this podcast are students. In the 1990s, he took a sabbatical to move to Germany, where he served as editor of the European Stars and Stripes. That is, until he had enough of what he called the bureaucrats back in Washington. And the guy who was publisher of Stars and Stripes at the time was a retired Navy captain who didn't know squat about journalism. And so I had one or two run-ins with him like that, and I said, I'm, I'm going to go back to Mizzou. Elmore, the former striper turned East Carolina professor, told me about another instance where a Stars and Stripes editor had a run-in with a commander. I remember a case where, um, you know, even our active duty military reporters were not supposed to wear a uniform. They were not supposed to be identified by rank. They were... Um, treated just like the civilian reporters. But of course, there are some military commanders who know their active duty and try to exert control that way. Um, for instance, one of our active duty Navy reporters who was assigned to a base in Sicily, a new commander came onto the base and scheduled an appointment with him. And I think he knew what was coming. So he told our editor and our editor flew down for the meeting and said, you're not gonna meet with my journalists without me. And during that meeting, the, um, you know, the, the commander tried to say, I want to see you in uniform every day. And our editor had to say, no, no, he may be in the military, but our, our rules say, say active duty military journalists don't have to wear a uniform for this very reason, because people will call rank on them.
The Stars and Stripes started by soldiers during the Civil War was an ad hoc affair, printed only when troops could find presses. After five issues, the paper's run ended when the war did. In World War I, the military revived the title for a paper for American troops that was published from February 18, 1918 to June 13, 1919, in war-torn Paris. At this point, the newspaper had gone from being published by eight soldiers to it employing 300 active duty members and civilians, a number that holds steady today. Thirteen years later, the name Stars and Stripes was revived again for another military newspaper targeted toward armed forces personnel overseas. This time the newspaper was published in London by a group of soldiers. The first edition appeared on April 18, 1942, the initial weekly four-page paper quickly grew into a daily eight-page paper. During World War II, between 1942 to 1945, official editions of the newspaper were published in every European and African areas of operation, in places like France, Germany, Egypt, Algeria, and Italy. In 1945, it reached the Pacific Theater, where it was published in Honolulu. The number of print sites eventually hit 25, and during this time, Stars and Stripes published over 30 newspapers, with some edition including as many as 24 pages. Since then, Stars and Stripes has been consistently published for 75 years. Editors have been placed all over the world to ensure the paper reaches the farthest corners of combat zones. Now remember, Stars and Stripes has followed the comings and goings of wars, the Civil War, World War I, and now World War II. If you mean this connection, so did I. So I asked Elmore about it. Would it be correct to say that Stars and Stripes has kind of been propelled forward by like a war that has happened? Um, because it seems like a lot of these like benchmarks in Stars and Stripes have occurred around a war happening. Yes, and here's the reason for that. Stars and Stripes gets extra money if there's a war. So during the war in Iraq and Afghanistan, um, Stars and Stripes was given extra money by the Pentagon to to house reporters there to, you know, to, to set up offices for reporters in Iraq and Afghanistan and, and for the very high cost of getting hard copies of the paper there. And you might think, oh, well, the internet, why do they need hard copies of the paper? Well, the, they don't have the internet. Even now, they don't have internet service everywhere where troops are deployed. And secondly, it's always going to be prioritized for the mission. And so you might find your average rank and file soldier doesn't have access to the internet, or if he or she does, it will be for a very limited period of time. And of course, they're gonna use that time to reach out to their loved ones. They're, they're not going, news may not be their first priority. And so there's still a need for hard copies of Stars and Stripes to get to the troops and that's expensive. This year isn't the first time Stars and Stripes has faced budget cuts, government caused or not. Stars and Stripes, like most news publications today, draw a large amount of its revenue from advertisements. It's been cut steadily for decades. I mean, when I was there in the 90s, um, some of the old timers would tell me, oh, you know, in the 70s and 80s, our budget was twice what it is now. We could travel significantly more than we do now. Um, and I believe our budget then is probably larger than it is now. So it's been a steady, a steady decline. I know they do more now to make their own, to bring in their own income than they used to. I mean, they've always had 
some money from circulation sales and advertising, and they still do, but they, they do some other things, but I know they publish certain, certain one-time publications, moving guides and things like that, that the military, I believe, pays for. But it is, you know, it is tough. Stars and Stripes Ombudsman Ernie Gates explains some of the choices Stars and Stripes has had to make to make up for the revenue losses. They've already done a lot of things in the past 10 years, just say five years, where um, the publisher had to make some tough choices about the frequency of publication. And in fact, entirely during my first term, Stars and Stripes was a seven-day print publication all over the world where it published. Print sites, you know, I think today they have 12, 13, maybe 14 print sites. The economics is still very bad for Stars and Stripes, the same as it is for your local newspaper. And uh, they're going to have to continue to confront these kinds of, of money questions. Remember during World War II, Stars and Stripes was using up to 25 print sites at one time. But today, that number has dwindled to less than half of what it once was. Stars and Stripes used to be a daily paper everywhere, but it has since decreased to five days, except for soldiers downrange where there is no internet access. Stars and Stripes' history of being a print newspaper began before the Transcontinental Railroad was completed, and even before inventions like the telephone and the light bulb. But over the years, Stars and Stripes has had to reinvent itself to become more digital in order to keep up with the changes in journalism and the world. Just like any other news organization, the conversion of Print advertising to digital advertising was a, was a terrible losing proposition. It is that for every dollar you used to get in print, that dollar online brings in 10 cents. And so the economics are just flooding in the wrong direction in the news world. And I think that's, that's true of Stars and Stripes. And they've converted many, many print ads to digital because they have a, a website that's refreshed all the time. Um, one of the nice things about being global is actually you, have, you really do have 24 hours of editors around the world refreshing your website. And they do e-newsletters of various kinds, and they do, uh, there's a podcast these days. They're, they're looking for every way they can get to bring in revenue in the way that people are advertising these days, which is essentially digital first. Former European Stars and Stripes editor Brian Brooks said about half of Stars and Stripes' budget comes from the government. This is because Stars and Stripes faces different challenges than other newspapers. And that's because it's so expensive, as you can imagine, to get papers to troops throughout the Middle East and Afghanistan and places like that. And the other half comes from circulation and advertising revenue. So it's a huge investment in Stars and Stripes, too. People forget that. I mean... They have contract printers in places like the Middle East and Italy and England, but they have their own presses in Germany. And so you're talking about million dollars in shutdown that would be required. Of course, that's nothing to the military, but that's a speck in the budget. Stars and Stripes total appropriation is just a tiny speck in the DOD budget. So, you know, that's, that's why I was so surprised that they even brought it up because it's nothing to them. I mean, it's, you know, it's like some obscure office that they don't pay any attention to. The Pentagon's entire budget request for fiscal year 2021 is more than 700 B as in billion dollars. The appropriation for Stars and Stripes, 15 million. 
couldn't find that money with a jeweler's eye if you were looking at the budget. Um, pretty sure the military spends more money on pencils in a day. That was Steve Bainan, a current reporter for Stars and Stripes. He's been there for about a year, but when he got the news the newspaper was shutting down in February, he thought... That's just something that every journalist is going to hear and have to prepare for no matter where they work. It could be Stars and Stripes, your your local broadcast station, or the New York Times, or some startup that happens in three years. Um, you're, you're going to hear that all the time through your career. Bainan is also a veteran. He's serving his 12th year in the Army National Guard, and since joining, he has deployed twice to Afghanistan. He recalls reading Stars and Stripes before he began working there on the Veterans Beat while covering the Department of Veterans Affairs and Capitol Hill. So when I'm on that mountain in Afghanistan, and hey, the government put me on that mountain. I didn't, it wasn't my idea to go there. Stars and Stripes was, the only, was one of the only things that's really keeping me entertained and the only real connection to the outside world. I had no electricity or internet. I read the news through Stars and Stripes because we kick a box out of an airplane and we got some newspapers with our coffee and our energy drinks and stuff like that. This is also true on military bases. If you're a family stationed in Italy or Germany, um, this is the only news outlet. On top of that, you would, the military would lose what is essentially their local paper. Um, Stars and Stripes is kind of equivalent to a college paper to a school. We are the college paper to the military. They would lose access to news in austere environments. Another veteran, Terrence Hayes, served in the Army for 20 years. Now he is the National Director of Communications for Veterans of Foreign Wars. Hayes pointed out that the old-fashioned ink-on-paper newspaper, known as hard copy, is still prized by troops who have limited access to the Internet in places like Iraq. In, in that environment that we're in, um, you know, many people rely on that hard copy newspaper uh, to provide them with the uh, information uh, that they, they need to know, you know, being educated on what's going on back home, but also being entertained as well. You know, without that hard copy, sometimes uh, folks really have no clue what's going on outside of their their space, you know, where they're located. And, uh, and, and servicemen and women who are in combat truly need that, uh, that, that ability to stay in tune with what's going on or just to get away by being entertained by you know, a news medium such as Stars and Stripes. I relied on them to uh, keep me entertained, uh, let me know what was going on in the sporting world. So, yeah, I mean, uh, you know, just like your traditional newspapers today, uh, where you have various different sections, uh, Stars and Stripes was the same way. So to be able to open up Stars and Stripes and know what's going on uh, in the Department of Defense or know what's going on uh, back at, you know, back at home, especially uh, I had a friend who, was deployed to Iraq during Hurricane Katrina, and they learned a lot through Stars and Stripes. First Sergeant Dusty Beam remembers deploying to Kosovo shortly after 9-11. He used Stars and Stripes to keep up to date with what was going on in the countries his friends were stationed in. This was November of 2001, so shortly after 9-11. And my company that I was with, we had three engineer platoons in the company, one platoon stayed in Fort Drum. One platoon went to Afghanistan um, right after 9-11. And then my platoon, we went to Kosovo. So I, that's how I kept up on what our, you know, other platoon was doing in Afghanistan. Stars and Stripes were running a lot of stories on 
you know, U.S. forces in Afghanistan. That's kind of how we stayed up to date with, with what our friends were doing. When U.S. Representative Ruben Gallego was stationed in Iraq, he depended on Stars and Stripes. That's why the Arizona Democrat is spearheading an amendment that will preserve funding for the military newspaper. As a, a veteran myself, someone who served overseas, Stars and Stripes was sometimes the only outside contact I had to the world. And it's also been very clear to me since getting to Congress that Stars and Stripes sometimes are the only journalists that will cover very intricate military issues that n normally journalists wouldn't cover nor understand. So it's important that we have this voice uh, that's really helping, uh, you know, expose some of the things that happen within the military that normally would not be seen. It's a good check on the Pentagon, essentially. Gallego said the paper is also a morale booster for troops far from home. I was what people would call a frontline Marine. I, I rarely was in my uh, you know, base, uh, and uh, even then I rarely got um, Internet access or anything of that nature. Uh, so, you know, the few times that I would ever get any stories, any newspaper, any, any kind of outside information was when Stars and Stripes was delivered with the mail. Uh, so... You know, psychologically, it was important to, to have outside contact. And even more so, it was important for me to, to read some of the things that were happening every, in everyday life, like whether it was sports, whether it was life, and, and sometimes wherever their investigative journalism is. So I do have a special bond with Stars and Strikes because they were there for me when, you know, uh, things were rough. Stars and Stripes has not only had disagreements with the military, it has also had to deal with government opposition. So why would anyone target Stars and Stripes for extinction? Ombudsman Ernie Gates has a theory. I believe that was inspired by a couple of things. One, the Secretary of Defense legitimately was trying to round up all the stray money and apply it to uh, military spending. And that was a legitimate enterprise, but it also created an opportunity for people who, were, who, who really are annoyed by Stars and Stripes and its First Amendment uh, activities to say, well, there's one I can do without. While Gates doesn't think Trump personally ordered the shutdown of Stars and Stripes, he believes the president's rhetoric set the stage for the Pentagon's attempt. I, I don't think that people at the White House or in the administration as such had any particular even awareness of Stars and Stripes back in February or a year ago when the budgets were being planned. I, th I think, though, that three years or going on four years of the president saying that the press is the enemy of the people and lots of people around the president echoing that and reinforcing that, I think that emboldened people over at the Pentagon in public affairs who went, hey, this, you know, this is a great chance. I think the atmosphere that's created in which it was easier and more likely that budget cutters across the river at the Pentagon would say, hey, the White House isn't going to give us any trouble on this. Let's, let's go for it. Former European Stars and Stripes editor Brian Brooks offers a different explanation. The comments that were made by the people at the Department of Defense when they announced they were going to do that just showed a complete lack of understanding about what Stars and Stripes was and what it did. They, they were saying, well, we've got better ways to get our information to the troops. Well, that's not the purpose of Stars and Stripes. The purpose of Stars and Stripes is to tell the soldiers and sailors and airmen what's going on in the world. 
and what's going on with their pay raise or no pay raise or whatever. And um, so they didn't even understand what the purpose of the publication was. And that's really sad to be making a decision like that and be so uninformed. After hearing about Stars and Stripes' history of its struggles to maintain its independence from government officials who fund it, you have to wonder, should newspapers take public funds? Should the taxpayers fund journalism? Congressman and Marine veteran Ruben Gallego says, I think there are certain instances where it's important for us to, to you know, allow space for the government to fund media. I don't think it's something that we want to do all the time because you need to have a separation specifically you know, to make sure that media is free and independent from the influence of government uh, and that way they can keep government in check. I think there's a very, some very niche areas such as Stars and Stripes that do deliver a certain type of journalism that would not be uh, ever replicated by uh, private media. Uh, there is no market for military journalism. Uh, it would be hard to replicate. It'd be hard to fund. Uh, and the fact that it, it's uh, the fact that it won't, it would not exist without some government funding. I think would end up being more detrimental to you know, keeping you know government accountable. Stephen Bainan, a now reporter for Stars and Stripes, argues that the newspaper is a service we the people owe our men and women in uniform. If you look at the federal government as a whole, I mean, or you look at the mission of journalism as a whole, it is to hold those in power accountable. And then you, you take that and it's the, it's the government, essentially. Uh, journalism is the only civilian institution protected by the Constitution. When it comes to the troops, the government needs to have a role that takes care of the troops as much as possible. Cindy Elmore, the former striper now teaching at East Carolina, thinks that a lot more than the future of one newspaper hangs in the balance. Well, I think every administration prior to Trump was, um, I mean, everyone was more appreciative of the, of the press than Trump has been. Trump calls the press the enemy of the people. I mean, there's, there's no comparison. There's never been anybody who so evidently hated the free press as much as the Trump administration has. So there really is no comparison. Not to say that, you know, previous presidents dislike some press scrutiny. Of course they do, but they've never come after the press the way the president has today. Elmore worries about the long-term effect of the president's attack. Because of the things he says, he has a lot of followers who, who don't believe anything the traditional legacy press ever says. I think there will be more more erosion of trust in journalism entities that are actually doing a really, really good job and, in my mind, saving our democracy. Unless his and his followers' attitudes change about the importance of journalism in general, I really fear for, for, um, for democracy. I do. That's it for this edition of Global Journalist, broadcast to you from the studios of the Reynolds Journalism Institute at the Missouri School of Journalism. I'm Reagan Mertz, with Levi Moltz-Homan, Tommy Corbett, Josiah Schooneman, and our executive producers, Trevor Hook and Cameron Denmark. Some of today's music came from DeWolf Music, the Library of Congress, and YouTube. Our thanks to audio engineer Aaron Hay. 
We're hard at work on a new episode about controversy at another publicly funded outlet, the increasing government involvement in Voice of America, and we'll be bringing that episode to you soon. Have any other story ideas for us? Send us an email at globaljournalists at missouri.edu. For all of us at Global Journalist, thanks for listening. <laughs>